hipsters, nipsters, flipsters, bobsters, hopsters, and finger-popping daddies. Hooray, hurrah, once again, the smartest man in the world group cast swings for the stars, this time live from the Gen Theater in Kansas City, Missouri, located conveniently across the street from the Jazz Museum and the Negro League Museum. It's the sixth annual Hall of Game Awards, where the Negro League Museum celebrates players who they consider to play with the flair, style, tenacity, and perseverance that the players in the Negro Leagues played with. I was thrilled to host again. Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro League Museum, asked me to do it, and this year's class is a corker. Um, You may remember him as the unforgettable slugger from the 1979 We Are Family Pittsburgh Pirates. That would be Dave the Cobra Parker. He hit the longest home run in history. Well, he'll explain. Yeah, and then barking at the storm from the left-hand side, Fred Firedog McGriff. Superb outfielder, Eric Davis, and immortal pitcher, especially with the Oakland Athletics, Dave Smoke Stewart, and receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award, the daughter of Rachel and Jackie Robinson, humanitarian author and activist, Sharon Robinson. Oh, there's smooth jazz and barbecue, and it's a stone gas, and it starts right about now. Were y'all ready? No, 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 no. Are you ready? Okay, you sound like you're ready. Well, it is my honor, my privilege to bring back to the stage as host of tonight's Hall of Game ceremonies, someone who is very near and dear to me. He and his wife, Jennifer, have become great friends, not only of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, but personal friends of mine. And this is his third year in a row coming in to host the Hall of Games. Uh, Some of you know him from the hit TV series, Whose Line Is It? And the improvisational comedy show, and of course the tour that accompanies it, Whose Line Is It Anyway? The very funny, the very talented, and a huge baseball fan. So I can tell you now, he's like a kid in the candy store. Yeah, he's like a kid in the candy store. And I had the pleasure this morning of presenting him with a 1945 Kansas City Monarch jersey that bears the number of Jackie Robinson. And I think I caught him off guard with that, but certainly as a token of our appreciation for what he continues to do for us. So please give him another warm Kansas City welcome, the great Greg Proops. Thank you so much. Wow, is it easy to be humble up here tonight? Uh-huh. Yeah, after listening to Sharon Robinson, I'd like to invite you back uh, to do a gig with me, Bob, where I bring out Michelle Obama, and uh, you get to follow her act. It's such a pleasure to be here again in Kansas City. It's such a thrill and an honor for me. I really am a kid in a candy store here because it's so awesome, and I love Negro League Baseball and, of course, all the ballplayers so much, and what enchanting weather we're having here in Kansas City. Just slightly hotter than the planet Bloody Mercury. But it's the humidity that gives it that Cambodian killing field swamp thing that really sets it off. A little more like Venus than Mercury, really. It was nice. On the way over today, we saw a dog explode on the way here. 
we had uh, Gates Barbecue. We always uh, have a beautiful day here. Uh, Bob gives a speech for several hours, and then um, we tour the museum for several more hours, and uh, Bob tells the same stories awesomely. Uh, then we have barbecue lunch, which is, of course, the lightest thing you can eat in this kind of weather. And I love it. I really do. We had Gates Barbecue. If I lived here, I'd weigh 400 pounds, like some of all y'all. The point is... <laughs> Easy, easy, walk it off. We have a long night together. <laughs> the crowd here is so well-dressed. That's what I really enjoy. Everyone shows up uh, on, in good order and well-appointed. Um, I live in California where people wear their underwear to the opera. So it's so beautiful to see hats and skirts and coats and ties of every decade. Um, <laughs> You have a new governor? Wow. Um, no, we won't talk about politics at all. Um, I would just say that uh, everything in Missouri I love, uh, the barbecue, the friendliness, the bourbon and whatnot. Now, if you could open up a couple dispensaries, then we could get something going here. Thank you for the two people who almost applauded. I know there's children here tonight. We're going to jump right in here. Um, uh, let's see here. It's such a pleasure, like I say, and an honor for me to take part in this. And um, Bob's comments and uh, Sharon's comments have not uh, gone amiss on me. It's that confluence of uh, race, gender, and economic equality that the Negro League symbolizes and embolizes so very much uh, moving forward in this country, which is what I hope we're doing. Um, I want to talk about the first five classes because I've been asked to name all of them. I've had the, uh, the honor and the pleasure of doing the last two, and then of course this one here tonight. Uh, in 2014, it was Lou Brock, Joe Morgan, Dave Winfield, and Roberto Clemente. In 2015, Ricky Henderson, Ferguson Jenkins, Ozzie Smith, and Louis Tiant. And by the way, I was on a plane ride once with uh, Ernie Banks. Well, he was on a plane I was on. And, um, I was on the phone with my wife and Ernie Banks walked on the plane and I went, Ernie Banks is on this plane and my wife said into the phone, you leave Ernie Banks alone and I hung up on her. <laughs> and then I proceeded to talk to Ernie Banks for quite some time and uh, he was going to New York uh, for the All-Star Game and I said, because I was overawed and overwhelmed and overcome with meeting Ernie Banks, I said, why are you, why are you going to New York, Mr. Banks? And he went, because um, they're having a Hall of Fame lunch in there and Greg, I'm in the Hall of Fame. But he told me that Ferguson Jenkins' mother was blind and that Ferguson Jenkins called him after every start and described his starts to her pitch by pitch. Yeah, Ozzie Smith, Louis Tiant. In 2016, Orlando Cepeda, from, uh, a San Francisco giant great and cardinal great and brave great. Uh, Andre Dawson, Tony Oliva, and Tim Raines. In 2017, uh, the majestic Al Oliver, Scoop, Tony Perez, Lee Smith, and Maury Wills. Last year, the extraordinary Dick Allen, Mudcat Grant, Kenny Lofton, Eddie Murray, and J.R. Richard. This year, of course, the astonishing Eric Davis, uh, Fred McGriff, Dave Parker, and Dave Stewart. Now, I'm a baseball kind of person, and you know that baseball fans like to have fantasy leagues and hot stove and whatnot, and they're all-time teams. Well, just looking over the first years here of the Hall of Game induction, my pitchers are Ferguson Jenkins, Mudcat Grant, J.R. Richard, Dave Stewart, Louis Tiant, and Lee Smith relieving. At first base, I've got Al Oliver, Orlando Cepeda, and Eddie Murray. At second base, Joe Morgan. At third base, Tony Perez. At shortstop, Ozzie Smith and Maury Wills. In the outfield, Ricky Henderson, Lou Brock, Dave Winfield, Roberto Clemente, Andre Dawson, Tim Raines, Dick Allen, Kenny Lofton, Eric Davis, and Dave Parker. 
My message to anyone who wants to put a team up against that is, beat me. Because without Henry Aaron, Willie Mays, and Frank Robinson, I'm winning 125 games. Uh, now let's get right into it. Our first player that we're bringing up here is uh, one of the most electrifying players uh, in baseball history. I saw him do extraordinary things uh, at Candlestick Park, uh, where I saw many games against the Reds. And um, he was a rare combination of power and speed. First player to hit 30 home runs in a season and steal 50 bases in a season. Um, he was an all-star and a hard-charging athlete. He often missed time because he was injured. He battled colon cancer in 1997, only to return to the game that same season during treatment and have one of the best statistical seasons in 1998. I would add, he had two inconceivably key hits for the Baltimore Orioles right after he came back from his surgery. For his career, three gold gloves, two silver sluggers, two all-star selections, and one World Series title. Ladies and gentlemen, leading off tonight, the electrifying Eric Davis. Eric, thank you. You're welcome. That was a great introduction. Well, thank you. Good. Uh, you know, we were talking this morning uh, as we were standing outside in the uh, parking lot uh, at the hotel that I, uh, you said you liked hitting in Candlestick Park. Yes. Yes. All right. Because uh, I saw the ball so well. E even though the temperatures and the wind was crazy and it had swirling winds and 30-mile-an-hour winds and things of that nature, but... It was one of those ballparks where I saw the ball extremely well. And hitting is always predicated on what you see. And, 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 and so your success is predicated on what you see. So therefore, the ball was white. And for like the first uh, 25 years there, I hold a record for most visiting home runs. I was tied with Mike Smith. So you know I saw the ball very well. I remember uh, seeing you. Uh, there was a terrible cyclone fence that ran around the outfield for ages and ages at Candlestick Park. And I saw you in a night game in 87 run right up that wall and stand on the top of it and catch a ball over the wall. That didn't sound right. <laughs> no? Because you got to know that was like a chain leak fence. It was a chain leak fence. That's what I meant. So for me fence. to run up that wall and go sideways, you saying I was superhuman? No, you, you put your feet right in the chain links and that was close over the top. Uh, it, it was one of those days where it was a night game and it was relatively cold and, and, you know, coffee was big in San Francisco at that time. So I was kind of full of coffee and, and one thing led to another. And next thing you know, I was dangling on the fence. I also saw Steve Carlton strike you out for his 4,000th strike. You didn't have to bring that up. <laughs> um, but if I was this 4,000, so that means it was 3,999 people before me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Carlton struck out everybody, and sure. he was just having a drink, a cup of coffee, as it were, with the Giants at that point. Uh, Paul O'Neill, who you played with, um, said of you, um, you were the best hitter, the best runner, the best outfielder, the best everything he ever saw. You were so all around, and speed and power, great arm, you could really hawk the ball. Um, what did it take for you to, to achieve that, coming from where you did? Uh, confidence, and, and at growing up in L.A., where... Um, it's a lot of history in South Central Los Angeles because a lot of people don't know the high school that I went to uh, had the most players in the major leagues in major league history. That was Fremont High School. It was 19 of us, yeah. and it goes all the way from Gene Mock to 
Danny Ford, Bobby Tolan, Bob Watson, uh, the great Willie Crawford, uh, Chet Lemon, Disco Danny Ford, George Hendricks, all them played in my high school. So I, I had a lot of things to keep up with. And, and so coming up in South Central Los Angeles where baseball was huge and, and playing the game that I love and uh, playing over the line and watching. We didn't have cable TV then, so you listen to the radio. And Vince Scully was one of my favorites, and I know you, everybody has their own people that they like to hear the game with, but Vince Scully really made you under, listen to the game almost like you was there. And then I caught myself in the front yard trying to be the Cobra with his hands like this and flapping my wing like Joe Morgan. So that was my childhood growing up and listening to to the things that the Negro League guys did and trying to mimic Shoeless Joe and all his guys, that was my childhood. So that really drew me into uh, having a love for the game that I always had. Uh, that's smashing. You, you've been compared to uh, the Negro League great, uh, he's in the Hall of Fame, Willard Brown. Uh, now Willard Brown was quite a great slugger and an awesome all-around player. Buck O'Neill called him the most natural baseball player he ever saw. Now, you had, you're a five-tool player you were good at every aspect of the game. Who do you think is the best uh, all-around player now, or do you have an opinion on that? I w if I had to choose one, it would probably be Mike Trout. Mm -hmm. um, because when you watch him play, the enthusiasm, the style, the grace, the dedication, uh, he goes to the post every day, he can hit, hit for average, and he plays uh, excellent center field, and he loves the game. And, and when you see guys like that, when he hits the ball, he drops his head. He's a humble kid. Uh, he's probably the richest kid, too, isn't he? <laughs> How would I like to be that right now? Right. But just the, just the persona that he breeds, it's, it's, it's few guys you could ever see that can transcend eras. And... and the one that I see right now who could transcend that era would be Mike Trout. Right, you could put him in any decade, yes. and he'd be monstrous. Yes. Now, you're the seventh player uh, to join the 30-30 club, which is some pretty illustrious territory. But That's I did it the quickest. You did it the quickest. You were, what was your, what are your third? 12 games. <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke, y'all. Golly. <laughs> <My I got goodness. laughs> I'm slow, but I get there. But it was the quickest. I did it in July. Right, I was going to say, yes. you, you didn't even play the whole season that year. You, you no, missed about actually, 30 games, 40 games. Uh, actually, I ran into the wall at Wrigley Field, and I uh, fractured two ribs, and I missed, like, the last 35 games. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had 37 home runs, 125 runs scored, 101 ribs, and 56 steals in August. And then that goes into the next season, right, where you had that uh, gigantic streak where if it had been a full season... Yes. You'd have had, what, close to 50 homers, 140 RBIs, 90 steals, was it? 85, 90 steals? Oh, uh, yeah, Joe that was back when you had to do whatever you had to do to survive. Yeah. Um, because that was baseball. And whatever you had to do to win the game, that's what we did. Uh, we didn't have specialty guys like that. We had guys who could do everything. And as listening to Dave, and Dave was my pops back then, and he taught me a lot of the things that he did, and he told me that, uh, anytime you get on, the quicker you got the third, the quicker you could score, the easier I would buy you something. So I was broke then. And uh, actually, that's when the minimum was $32,000 a year. So, you know, I stole really? everything. Yeah, I stole everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, tell me about uh, Dave Parker a little bit. I know you guys have a very close relationship. Now, 
uh, he took you under his wing right away, did he? Not right away. Uh-huh. Uh, because when I first met him, the first day of spring training, you know, I was excited. The Cobra, I mean, you know, that's legendary. You know, we are family and stuff. Yeah. You know, they was doing it. And, like, when he came to Cincinnati, and we was in Tampa, Florida at the time, and, uh, you know, he pulled up, and he was always jazzy, and, you know, he dressed good and all that kind of thing. But he got out of a slant-nosed Porsche, which was really exciting and stuff. So, you know what I'm saying? I got out of just a, a slant nose. I don't know what it was, but it was, it was just a slant nose. It wasn't no pores. That was just from all that. And I was so excited, so I ran up to him and introduced myself, and he cut me off. He said, I know who you are, kid. I'll talk to you a little later. And so he kind of blew me off. And I never forgave him for that. <laughs> but he did take care of me, and, and to, to, to say how much he means to me is an understatement. And for me to be here, being enshrined with someone of his caliber um, is really humbling and stuff, but it really, uh, it, it, it's emotional for me because how he took care of me. And he was like my father away from home. And when you come into this game, you hope and pray that you have someone that you can lean on. And all the things that he had went through, being in Pittsburgh and winning, MVPs, he could have really just shined me on and not do anything, but he saw something in me that exemplified what he was really about, and it was a friendship that's lasted almost almost 30 some odd years, and it's definitely going to keep going. So I'm, I'm proud to be able to be up here, but I'm even prouder to go in with my pops. That's awesome. <laughs> if you don't mind, I've been reading your book with great interest, which you. came out in 98. Eight, right after? Yes, 98. 99, yes. 98. And there was two quotes here that I wanted to mark. Because when, at that era in your career, you were lightning in a bottle. And um, this was a quote from your book here. Uh, the headline read, smash hit. Parker, Pete Rose, Willie Mays, and Henry Aaron had said a lot of nice things about me. But the thing I always remember was Mays saying, it's an honor to be compared to Eric Davis. I hope Eric is honored in the end all they'll do is compare numbers on paper, and that's not always the game. Um, Willie Mays, of course, was my hero. Uh, and then this one about Dave Parker, because I thought it was just extraordinary. I watched Dave Parker get 32 cc's of fluid drawn out of both knees at 5 p.m., be in the lineup playing at 7.30 that evening, take people out at second base to break up a double play at 8.45 that night. Uh, so I just thought... Was it, obviously your relationship is so close, but you're so dedicated and you're so focused. What was it that Dave Parker was able to imbue into you that was allowed you to be such a fantastic superstar? Just to never be satisfied because it was always the next day. Hmm. Uh, it, was, it was always the next play and you, you would only be remember by what you do next and, and not to be satisfied and to watch him uh, at 6'5", and, and play on artificial turf his whole career prior to him going to Oakland, and to watch them drain his knees and then play was remarkable. And, and so how can I be 21 years old, not wanting to play with a runny nose, and here he out here with needles and things. And so I did everything that I could to stay on the field, and that's what he embodied. 
but not only him, but David Concepcion and, and you know Tony Perez. I was part of some great, great players that taught me the right way to play the game. Uh, but just about how Dave went about his business on and off the field for, for him to ingratiate me into his life with something he didn't have to do. Uh, but he, he showed me the way to do that. And the only thing that he wanted from me was that I did for others what he did for me. And so that was my way of paying him back was to do the same thing for the Barry Larkins and the Paul O'Neills and the guys that came up behind me. That's fantastic. Can we talk just for a second about uh, the cancer you had in 97? Yes. It was diagnosed, and then you were treated almost immediately. What did you say? You were diagnosed on a Wednesday? And well, No, actually, actually, I was misdiagnosed. Ah. Um, because I was told I had an abscess. Uh, because I, I didn't have any symptoms. I was in Cleveland. I just hit a triple and I scored on a sacrifice fly, and I kind of had a collision with the catcher. So, you know, that's what we do. And after the third out, I went to get up to go out on the field, and I couldn't get up. The pain hit me just that severely. And, and, and so they took me out of the game, and then they gave me some medicine, and I played the next day. And then the next day, we went to New York Memorial Day weekend on a Saturday. Then I played, and then after that game, the pain was so excruciating, they put me on a plane back, excuse me, put me on a train back to Baltimore. And then uh, uh, the ambulance picked me up from the train and took me to University of Maryland's hospital. And I was in the hospital for 10 days and, and it was told me that I had an abscess. But nobody in the hospital can tell me how did it get there. I was, here I am 34 years old and I've never had any type of illness outside of baseball illness and things of that nature. They actually put a catheter inside of my stomach and tried to drain it. But no one could tell me so, uh, it, it was just a grace of God that I had some friends that lived there, and, and they told me to check out of that hospital and go to John Hopkins. And the first thing that, that the doctor did to me Wednesday night is because I checked out at 5 o'clock and I went right to John Hopkins, and the first thing he did was a colonoscopy and told me I had a tumor the size of a grapefruit. And so that was Wednesday night, and I was in surgery uh, Friday morning. It was waiting until my wife and my mom and them got to town. Thursday night, and I went into surgery Friday morning. Holy cow. Now, how long was it before you returned? Because you played in the postseason. That was June. June. It was Friday the 13th. It was June 13th. I wasn't scared of Jason. I didn't care about none of that. I didn't, I didn't think I cared about Jason on Friday the 13th. No. <laughs> and I actually came back uh, September the 5th. Uh, I, I took 32 rounds of chemo, yes. Were you, you were still taking chemo, were you not, when you... Uh, I was still taking chemo when I played, yes. Well, what kind of energy does it take to, to have chemotherapy and carry on playing and, and be in the postseason? Well, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have any symptoms, so I didn't really know what not to do. And every time I talked to my physicians, they told me I could do whatever I wanted to do. So I actually ate while I was taking chemo. Oh, uh, because I was doing it intravenously, and I would watch a movie, and I would have a Caesar salad and a Coke and, you know, for two hours and watching a movie. And I never got sick. Uh, it, it was a real good friend of mine who I played with, Eric Anthony, who played for the Reds. His wife is an herbalist. And she brewed me some teas over the, over the stove. It was like nine or ten teas, and I drank that, and I never got sick. And... I never was in any pain, and the only thing that I 
uh, was worried about was what I physically be able from the scarring uh, when I become back. But when that healed and I came back, it was nothing really preventing me from playing. Well, you had a, what, a, a two-run hit off uh, Johnson uh, the, against the Mariners, and then you had a, a tater against the... Uh... I, I, I said, Mark, I made a huge mistake, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Touched him up a little bit. He made a mistake. Yeah. Um, you also uh, had Dave Stewart is here tonight, and you had a, a home run off him in your first at bat in the 1990 World Series. Did you I have was... to talk about that? That's my man. You not to. <laughs> <laughs> we like this, Dave. You know that. Yeah. Um, uh, Dave Stewart beat my Giants up pretty hard the year before, so I was pretty excited when you hit that home run. Tell that to Dave. Don't tell it to Oh, me. I will. I've told him oh, before. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> I think do we, there it is. Yeah, there's the home run. Yeah. It's nice. Right um, on. <laughs> we'll, we'll shower you in glory as it's well. It's interesting, Dave. though. It, it's, it, it's interesting because I had faced Dave in an All-Star game in Anaheim the year before. And he threw me a first pitch fastball. I don't know if he remembered this, but he threw me a first pitch fastball. And, and he threw me four splits and walked me. And then I stole second and I stole third and he got out of the inning. And so when we met the, the next year, that was the only thing that was on my mind is not to give away the one pitch that I could possibly have that whole at bat. And, and, and so I made up my mind. I said, if he threw me a first pitch fastball, at least I'm not going to take it. And he just happened to throw it where I was swinging. And... and 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 two weeks later, they're still looking for it. So, you know, I don't know. But, you know, that's the win and all that kind of stuff. You Eric know. the Red, Eric Davis, yes. ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much, pal. You're welcome. Thank you. Fantastic. Um, our next uh, inductee into the Hall of Game uh, was a lightning fast slugger uh, with tremendous power. Uh, let's just go over some of his awesomeness. Known for his power, Fred McGriff is one of the greatest home run hitters in the history of Major League Baseball. He, of course, has 493 career home runs, which is tied with Lou Gehrig. You may have heard of him. He played first for a while with the Yankees. Um, a five-time All-Star, Fred McGriff hit 30 or more home runs 10 times, including seven straight seasons. World Series champion with the Braves in 95, five all-star selections, three silver sluggers, two-time home run leader in each league, led each league in home runs. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the fire dog, Fred McGriff, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, Fred. Oh, this is a beautiful thing. I mean, I, I love Kansas City. Right? You know, getting a tour of the museum this morning was awesome. And, uh, and like you say, that Gates barbecue. Woo! Right? <laughs> that was a nice little thing. Man. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, so this is your first time in the museum? First time. And I will be back. It, it was outstanding. Bob did a great job this morning going over the tour and everything. And uh, it was outstanding. Very educational. Mm. It's astonishing, isn't it, the oh. history? Uh, your nickname, uh, let's just go right to this, and then we'll go past it. Uh, 
I, I prefer the fire dog because in 1993, uh, you were traded to the Braves, and uh, the Giants and the Braves were battling pretty hard that season. Not that everything's about the Giants. And the press box caught on fire at Fulton County, and um, you hit a home run. And then what was, how many? I just said a few. But yeah. let's put it a, that, well, on that well, night. Well, see, the, the whole story oh. is that, like, I'm playing with the Padres, and Gary Sheffield, great player, was my teammate, right? So we're playing the Giants, and Gary, first at bat, he hits a grand slam off his pitch of Trevor Wilson, okay? His next at bat, he hits another home run off of uh, Trevor Wilson, right? And so I'm hitting behind Gary, right? And so he hits me. You know, he hits me with a pitch. And so I, I charged him on and everything, because, you know, it's, it's, it's the principle of everything. Because your teammates, they're going to rag you. If this pitcher hits you on purpose and you don't do nothing, then they're going to they give you a tough time on the bus trips and everything else. They're going to be all over you. So, so I had to charge them out. And, you know, with baseball brawls, by the time the catcher grabs you and everybody comes out, you know. But I tried to throw a little few punches here and there, and I put my rib cage. Okay. So then I get traded to the Braves. Okay. And so now I'm talking to the general manager, and I'm telling him, I'm like, my ribs are bad. I cannot play right now. So I'm like, he, so he says, stay home, go to Tampa for a few days, because that's where I live. So he's like, you can't come to Atlanta and not be ready to play. So I'm like, cool, okay, okay. So I go home for a few days, try to get better. So I leave Tampa, it's about like a six hour drive to Atlanta. So I tell myself, hey, okay, leave about 12 o'clock noon, it's gonna take you six hours. You get there about six o'clock, 6.30. Game starts like seven o'clock, so I know it's no chance I'm gonna play. So to be perfect, I, I show up, I tell them my ribs are bad. I look at the lineup. I'm not gonna be in there, and it's gonna be all good. So I had it all planned perfect. So I drive to Atlanta. I get there about six o'clock, and I walk in and I look at the lineup. And I'm in the lineup, heading forth. I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm telling you, the man upstairs, he's like, Fred, you can't play, right? So. The stadium catches on fire. You know, <laughs> you know I'm telling you, it, it catches on fire. Yeah, you know, because he, he, he's like, Fred, you can't yeah. play. So the minute that it catches on fire, I head straight to the training room, and I got the trainers working on me and everything. So the game didn't finally start until like 9 o'clock, 9.20 that night. You know, and I was Bobby Cox. I'm still in the lineup. You know, so I went out there and played, ended up hitting a home run. And so that's where the fire dog came in, because... My first night in Atlanta, stadium catches on fire, we win, we're like, you probably remember, we're like 10 games out of first place yeah. at the break. Yeah. So we ended up catching the Giants and uh, it was a great year, but that's where the fire dog all started and the thing about it, it stuck. Whatever they say on air about you, true or false, uh -huh. it sticks. Fantastic. Well, do you prefer fire dog to crime dog or have you grown to appreciate crime dog over the years? Uh, well, crime dog started with Chris Berman. Right. And the thing about it, my last name, McGriff, M-C-G-R-I-F-F, -F, and then you got McGruff, M-C-G-R-U-F-F, -F, so you know Chris Berman, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Uh, yes, I remember he called Audubie McDowell, Audubie Young again, McDowell. <laughs> I know, I felt the same way. Um, one of the game's uh, greatest sluggers, you've been compared to a Negro Leagues legend, um, Buck Leonard, who was a superb slugger, uh, and one of the greatest pure hitters in Negro League history. What was your mentality when you went to the plate? What was your approach? What were you thinking? 
I approached, well, when I was in the minors, coming through the minors, and think about it, we got to give much love to, uh, where's uh, Kevin Battle? You know, you got to understand, I probably wouldn't be here today without Kevin Battle, because we started out in Ricky Ball together down in um, Sarasota, uh -huh. Bradenton, Florida, and everything, and uh, Kevin was with the uh, Pirates, and we were like 17, 18 years old, and so we would hang out together, and so he, he taught me a lot about baseball, you know, but the thing about it, I learned over the years when I first started, I was looking for breaking balls and curve balls and stuff like that. And so in the minors, I swung at them. No matter where they were at, I swung at them because I guessed right. The pitcher threw was I expecting. I was swinging at them high, low, in the dirt and everything. And things weren't working. You know? So I ended up talking to Wade Boggs and so forth and other hitters. And they're telling me, like, Fred, just look for the fastball because they, they, they got to throw it to you. So every pitch, just start looking for it. And so that's what I started doing. And so to this day, I look for the fastball every single stinking pitch. And, and, and I laugh sometimes when I'm watching TV because, you know, you get all these people trying to analyze the game and everything. And people forget that the ball is on top of you in less than one second. You know, it's on top of you, right? And so you got these people who's talking about, well, let the ball get deep. Let the ball travel. And all this man, like, dude, the ball's only on top of less than one second. And you're talking about, let it travel. Let it get deep. I'm like, okay. Y'all keep trying to let it get deep, all right? All right. They going right back to the dugout every single time. Like, hey, I let the ball get deep. You know, like they tell me. Yeah. <laughs> it's a funny game now, but I look for that fastball every single time. You know, because another thing about it, like, when a guy, like, you got a Dave Stewart and those guys that got good split fingers, why are you going to sit there and, like, take the fastball so they can throw you splits where if they throw you a good one, you ain't going to hit it anyway? You know, so why, why, why wait? Okay. Come on, I know he throws a spit, split finger, so I'll just wait for it to come, and I'll still be going back to the dugout again. I don't understand that. I laugh every night. <laughs> now, you, you hit a famous home run off Dave Stewart. Not that I want to get on Dave Stewart again, but... Uh, <laughs> so you were thinking about cranking one basically every time you got up there. I love the idea that you're supposed to wait one out when it's one second. What, are you supposed to reach into the catcher's mitt and pull it out? Uh, I don't know, you know, because like I said, I watch them nowadays, and they're just... Just take little fastballs right down the middle of the plate and um, look for these, because all the stats and the analytics these days tell them like, well, the pitcher throws um, his split finger, you know, 20% of the time he throws his curve 30% uh, of the time. And I was like, come on, man, go up there and look for a fastball. <laughs> you were such a consistent power hitter. How do you, uh, how, what do you attribute that, the, uh, uh, the key to maintaining your power so consistently for every year? I mean, because you didn't, you didn't really tail off for the longest time. You just kept on crashing. Yeah, I was fine until they started hitting 60 home runs and everything. <laughs> and they kind of <laughs> left me behind a little bit. But, you know, I, I was just, my approach every single day, like I said, um, looking for the fastball, just looking for that pitch that I knew I could hit, pitch hitting to my strengths. Instead of trying to hit to my weaknesses, I was trying to hit my strengths. And so I knew I could handle the fastball. So I'm going to go up there and I'm going to look for that pitch. And I don't care if he throws breaking balls, sliders, or whatever. I'm looking for that fastball. They're like, I think it got me in trouble like a few years ago. We're, we're in meet, meetings and everything because I do some work with Atlanta Braves. And the GM's like, Fred, look at this picture we got. You know, we're thinking about acquiring this guy, right? And look at this curveball and look at the spin rate on his uh, breaking ball and everything. What do you think, Fred? And I'm like, honestly, I don't care about his spin rate or <laughs> nothing because... I'm looking for that dead red. I don't care about no spin rate, what his curveball going to do. I'm looking for dead red. I think he didn't like that answer. <laughs>
Yeah, it doesn't go down well in the meeting. What was your favorite ballpark to crash? Well, back in the day, it was uh, Yankee Stadium. Oh. You know, with all the history of Yankee Stadium and everything, and sort of walk in there and be able to hit a home run there, it was awesome. And whatever you do in New York is like, it's huge. I remember I'm first breaking into the league, and I hit a big home run in Yankee Stadium up in the upper deck. And that's when I knew, like, Prime dog, you can play in this league. You're right. You know, hey, you, you can stay. You can stick around. Fantastic. So, when in your work in the front office, uh, um, aside from uh, contradicting uh, executives, what lessons do you uh, try to pass on to uh, you know the people coming up? Well, I just try to tell these young kids. I mean, just of course you got to practice a lot of a lot of practice, but you just got to stay on your game because nowadays, I mean, you should see every night like the numbers. And, and the stats they get on every single player. And so before every game nowadays, um, these coaches, they get handed to them like a notebook this thick on a, a hitter's hot zone, his cold zone, I mean, what he hits in this count and that count. And so as a hitter, you got to really be on your game because they got so many numbers out there, um, you know, where you can hit, what you can't hit, you know, the shifts, they put shifts on you. And um, the shifts, they're going to take away. They take away a few hits because they're really shifting to one side. But the only thing, they can't shift when you hit it over the fence. You know, <laughs> when you hit it in the seats, they can't do nothing about that. Uh, how do you feel about being inducted? I know it's your first time here uh, into the Negro League Hall of Game. Uh, this is special. Just coming in here this morning and Bob giving a tour, and then you're just sitting and you, you learn so much. It was so much that I didn't know before today that I know now, and so it's just a, uh, it's a great honor. And to go in there with um, the great, you know, Eric Davis and Stewart and Dave Parker, you know, everybody gives Park so much love because you're talking about a quality individual and player and myself, uh, watching him play, we are family, the, the Pirates, and, and me, I've, I lived the dream. You know, for 20 years, I lived the dream of playing ball, and it all started. Um, you know, I wouldn't be here without the Negro League and, and seeing Dave Park and those guys, and I was a left-handed hitter myself, so watching the way Dave played the game and, and he swung the bat, and, and, and I picked up so much back in the day um, watching baseball on TV, uh, the Saturday game in a week and the Monday night game in a week and so forth, and so just the opportunity to be here today and um, be with these guys is outstanding. That's fantastic. One last thing. In the 95 World Series, uh, which you guys won, uh, you, uh, you, um, you let off the second against Hershiser. Tell us about that home run. I think, are they showing it? I think they're showing it. Oh, there we go. I mean, that was special because in the sense where uh, the Braves as a franchise, they had been awesome all these years, but they came a little short. They had been went to the World Series a few times, and so um, they lost to the uh, Toronto Blue Jays one year, and they lost to the Minnesota Twins. And so the pressure was on them to finally win a, a series uh, and so forth. And so, you know, it's different when you've been there to the series and you're expected to win. You know, guys are excited, but they know that you got to win that World Series to get over the hump. And so in 1995, um, played on a great team with Dave Stewart, I mean, um, Dave Justice and Marquise Grissom and so forth. And uh, we were able to finally get over the hump. But that home run against Hershiser, you know, Hershiser, he was a pretty good pitcher. But like Ooh. I said, you know, I'm looking dead red. You know, so if he throws a little fastball, I'm getting ready to get on it. And so uh, I did. And as you see, that was the result. <laughs> Fred McGriff, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah.
Um, it's so exciting. Uh, every player I get to introduce up here, the next one is particularly exciting. Um, Dave Parker uh, was uh, an astonishing player. Uh, I think his 1978 season was just uh, 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 rock the world, really. Dave Parker made an immediate impact on Major League Baseball in the 70s. His rookie season, 308, 35 doubles, 10 triples, 25 homers, and 101 RBIs, and finished third in the MP, MVP voting. In his third season, he won the batting title. The following year, he was the MVP, and led the majors with a 338 batting average, a 585 slugging percentage, 340 total bases, and the gold glove. Throughout his 19-year career, seven all-stars, three gold gloves, three silver sluggers, two batting titles, and two World Series rings on two awesome teams. He also had the distinction of being the first ever winner of the Home Run Derby uh, in 1985. We're so very excited and delighted to welcome the Cobra, Dave Parker, ladies and gentlemen. I'm having the time of my life. Are you kidding? I wish this was a five-hour show. I don't know talk to I, everybody for hours. I don't know if I can last five hours. I know, right? Well, you made it through this morning in the barbecue, so... Yeah, well, that's half battle. <laughs> um, now, this is this your first time here? Yeah, my very first time. Oh, really? And I'm very impressed with uh, the, the Hall of Fame. Uh, and I will be back. Awesome. Now, you had a, a bunch of teammates here tonight. Uh, Eric Davis, of course, and uh, Dave Stewart, who you uh, had a fantastic World Series ring with. Uh, but your first 11 seasons, you were in um, Pittsburgh. Right. And, uh, yeah. And the We Are Family team, which is uh, just legendary. Uh, let's talk about a little, will you talk about a little the, uh, when you first came up with Pittsburgh and how you know, the, the batting titles and that, that 1979 team? Well, the 79 team, we had about 12 or 13 guys that hit 300 somewhere in, on, on that team. You know, we uh, was an offensive ball club, and we also, uh, like Fred, we, we believe in, you know, looking fastball and adjusting everything else. Uh, the way to be a good breaking ball hitter is not to miss the fastball, and I never missed it. We're learning a lot of insight about hitting tonight, and it makes me wonder about all the young pitchers trying to learn breaking balls. Well, they're making a mistake with the breaking ball. <laughs> you know, a good breaking ball, you won't hit anyway. It's changing direction in midair, and it's going to break probably once, one and a half times before it gets to, to the mid. So uh, the fastball is the key to hitting. So let, can we talk a little bit about Willie Stargell? What did, what did he mean to you when you first came up? Well, Willie uh, is a universal personality. I mean, if you can't like Willie, you can't like anyone. And he tucked me on the wing, and that's basically what I did with Eric and him, you know, was just passing on what was passed on to me. And uh, Willie was uh, 
a guy that everyone loved, and uh, he was scary at, at the plate when you're on first base after you hit a single. Uh, it's like looking down a shotgun barrel. Uh, but Willie uh, was a guy that everybody loved. Oh, yeah, and that team. It felt like that year was the year that, uh, you know, you guys had been to the playoffs, and he hadn't always done that well in the playoffs, but that year, he was just extraordinary. And the last game of the World Series was amazing. Yeah, Willie, uh, the stage was set. I mean, it was ideal for Willie to be the hero of uh, that series. And uh, I can recall him telling me around the second inning after he had went to the plate and fouled one back, and he uh, came uh, next to me and he said, I'm going to get him if he throw me that pitch late in the ball game. And uh, true enough, he threw him a breaking ball and Willie tucked him deep. On a breaking ball, was it? Yeah. <laughs> That's Willie. <laughs> now, they compare you to the uh, Negro League uh, great Ted Strong, who, like you, uh, Ted Strong was a superb basketball player as well. Uh, and I know you played all the sports, right? Football? Yeah, played all three majors. And what made you go with baseball? Knee surgery. I tore my knee up the um, first game of my senior year of football. And that kind of changed uh, the whole complexion of uh, what I wanted to do. So you switched over to baseball? Yeah, baseball uh, was uh, the ideal thing to do because I, I played all three of them equally uh, very good. So I, I could have adjusted and, and probably played right away. Were they scouting you at all for football and base, uh, basketball? Yeah. Uh, football, I got more coverage because uh, that was before I hurt my knee. When I hurt my knee back in, there wasn't no scopes and stuff back in those days. They had a wire stitch in my, my leg that was about a foot long and that was holding an incision together. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think I could have played uh, basketball if possible. What were you in football, tailback? Tailback. What, and what in basketball? I was a power forward. Power forward. Eric Davis uh, played basketball, and uh, we were at an event in Florida, and uh, we uh, had Eric, and I, I went up to, to dunk a ball, and uh, Eric had palmed the ball. I couldn't move it, you know. And I said, well, why do you want to show me up like that, you know? Now, Eric spoke very highly of you. Uh, what did you think of him when he first came up? Oh, talent jumping off of it. He had world-class speed, and strong throwing arm, hit with power and average. He was a 5-2 player. Now, you also could do everything. You stole, you played hard, you took out the shortstop, um, but your defense, you know? I mean, the All-Star game that you won the MVP for, what do you, I think you drove in one run, you didn't have a home run, but you threw out two guys. What, right. what, what did you consider more important, or did you consider one thing more important than the other? What did you well, enjoy more? Well, that particular game, I enjoyed them, you know, getting them out with throw. Uh, but basically, uh, I like showing all five tools, you know, and uh, 
My, my thing was uh, I never did jog the first. I always ran hard the first. And uh, it just uh, was one of those uh, things of playing with guys like Stargell, who was a great man and a great player. And, uh, you know, having teammates like Eric, Eric and Willie make you play hard. Where do you think your swag came from? You were so old. Well, uh, going to school, growing up in Cumminsville, you, you better have a, a swag to you, you know. And uh, Cumminsville was a, a neighborhood that was known to be pretty rough. And uh, we uh, played various sports against different neighborhoods, you know. So one way for us to get across our frustrations was to play sports. You know, this community play this community on, on Saturday and we play Moosewood on Sunday. And uh, that, that kept us, kept the community going and, and it kept us co competitive. Moosewood? Yeah, that was a community, neighboring community. Is that in, outside of Sensei? Uh, it's right in the heart of Sensei. In the heart of Sensei. Right. Wow. Now, there's a couple stories about you that remind me of the Negro League so much because they are uh, implausible to the point of uh, snapping reality in two. When you're playing for the, was it the Charleston Charlies? Right. Um, you hit a home run so far. Tell, tell us about this. Well, I played in Charleston, West Virginia in triple A ball, and I hit the longest home run ever hit in baseball's history. Uh, I was at the plate, and uh, uh, the left field line was at the railroad track, and I hit a ball that landed in a coal car, and uh, <laughs> they, they measured the, they, well, they, they went and found out where it was uh, destined to go. And uh, it was from Charleston to Columbus, Ohio. So, I, <laughs> it's so the longest home, longest home run ever. It's a good thing you weren't near a lake or something, or the ocean. I might have killed some fish then. <laughs> might have landed on a boat and gone to France and whatnot. Yeah, could have. <laughs> oh, and then in 79, you hit a ball. T tell us about this one. You hit a ball so hard that the cover came off. You know, it's hard for people to believe that, but uh, I did hit a ball and knocked the cover off, got a double. The ball stopped rolling halfway between the center field and the second baseman, and I ended up getting a double. That just shows you I hustle. That's the one thing I emphasize to these young kids, hustle. Right, and look dead red. Uh, um, you, uh, you, you played at, um, for several teams, uh, obviously, uh, Pittsburgh and then Cincy, and then you went to Oakland. Um, where well, you got to go to two more World Series right. with Dave Stewart uh, as the ace of that team. Now, the 88 team that beat you guys, and this is no knock on the 88 Dodgers, the lineup was not outstanding, if I may use under-characterization as my strength here. 
Well, her shoulder was outstanding. He was. Yeah, and he, he was the key to them winning. Yeah, he was a lot of the show that year. Because who was there? I mean, Kirk Gibson played one game. And um, I think they had, what, John Shelby? I don't remember who the number four hit. Mickey Hatcher? Yeah, Mickey Hatcher got some play. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Mickey got to play. Um, <laughs> then tell me about 89. It was a, a heartbreaking year for me, of course. Uh, but uh, um, you guys were just not to be stopped that year. What was your mindset going into uh, 89? Did you guys feel like that after 88 you needed to settle the issue? Well, we made up our mind that we was going to be back in the World Series and, and get what we left there, which was uh, the championship. And we made our mind up uh, at the end of 88 playoffs in the series. So, you know, uh, we knew the best team didn't win. And, uh, you know, we were coming back to get what was ours. Now, you hit a home run in game four. Yeah, I think it was game four. All right. <laughs> you were punishing. You were all over the yard. What was it like working with Dave Stewart then, being a teammate? Well, Dave uh, should have won two size Cy Youngs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, playing with him, you know, you was playing behind a, a quality pitcher. And uh, Dave was one of those guys that he focused, he gets focused to get ready to go in, in, in the game, start the game. But uh, Dave was an easy guy to pump up. It, it didn't take much to get Dave fired up to, to pitch. And uh, so when Dave, the, the other team might get a run or so off of him, and I'd go tell him, I'd say, look at them over there. They think they got you. They don't have you. Look at them. Look at them over there. And Dave would put that, that brow down and go out and just blow everybody away. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Uh, four wins in that postseason, I think, every single game he pitched, and two against the Giants, 2-0. Yeah. And series MVP. Um, the earthquake happened in the middle of that series, and it was postponed for, well, I can't remember, 10, 12, 13 days, something like that. Um, let's show a clip here. Uh, we were talking about this after dinner, um, about... Uh, Right, the game was, I can't remember what time the game was supposed to start, 7 or 7.30, and this is the pregame show, and while the pregame show's going, the earthquake struck, and they're showing a clip of Dave Parker, this is game three of the 89 World Series, at the moment that the earthquake struck, they're showing a clip of Dave Parker's highlights from game two. Let's just look for a second. Downtown San Francisco in the background, and we zoom into Candlestick Park in the southeastern corner of this city. For the first time in 27 years, a World Series game will be played in Candlestick Park. The Battle of the Bay continues, allowing Jose Canseco to score, and he fails to get Dave Parker at second base, so the Oakland A's take... take I'll tell you what, we're having an earth...
wow. Did you make that earthquake happen, Dave Parker? That's, that's what they tried to put on me. You know, I, I was nice and slim, about 2.30, and I did a head-first slide, and that, they wanted to put that on me. I thought it was... <laughs> your intimate relations with the Almighty that you called down upon us, an earthquake, so that Dave Stewart could have 10 days rest. Dave probably, probably needed it. How, how do you keep focused after that when, you, when there's going to be a week and a half off before the next World Series game? Well, it's hard to stay focused after a tragedy such as that. Mm. You know, uh, but after being a, away from the game for two or three weeks and uh, seeing the general public rehash and relive all the, the damage that was done, you know, I, I thought that uh, we came back at the proper time. You know, because the the people needed something. The fans needed something to get them back in gear. And uh, coming back was probably what, just what they needed. I couldn't agree more. The Bay Area totally needed the series to resume. Right. Uh, it was fantastic. So what does it mean to you? Uh, this is your first time here, and uh, you fit the mold perfectly, having hit the longest home run of all time that traveled over several states. <laughs> to be a member of the Negro League Hall of Game, to get inducted here tonight with Sharon Robinson and... Dave Stewart and Eric Davis and uh, um, Brad McGrath. Well, it's a pleasure to be here for the Hall of Game and uh, to be here with uh, great players as Fred McGriff, uh, Eric Davis, uh, and I'm losing it. <laughs> it's all right. You know, but to have all these stars here and to be inducted in the Hall of uh, fame is, is well worth the, the trip and uh, well worth rehashing the home run and, and the earthquake. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, the awesome Dave Parker. It's a special thrill uh, to talk to everyone here, but being from the Bay Area, uh, Dave Stewart uh, looms pretty large. Uh, 20 games, four years in a row, um, a ring with the Oakland Athletics, uh, three times in the postseason, back to back to back. Um, absolutely unbeatable in the division series and an astonishingly great pitcher in Bay Area history. It was when he came to Oakland uh, that he became the legend that he uh, is. Uh, five World Series uh, in his 16-year career, three World Series titles, 81 with the Dodgers, 89 with the A's, and 93 with the Toronto Blue Jays, the MVP of the 89 series, a complete game shutout in game one that was 5-0, and uh, another win in game three that was 13-7. He was the MVP of the 1990 and 93 ALCS, where he was undefeated. Uh, known for his nasty glare from the mound, I should say so, and I would agree with Dave Parker uh, that he should have earned at least one, if not two, uh, Cy Young Awards. Following his playing career, 
He's been a coach, an agent, and an outstanding agent, and a front office executive, and a general manager. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so excited to have you welcome pitching great Dave Stewart. Yeah. Well, Dave's uh, Parker was just up here, so let's start with the '89 series. That has to be a an astonishing moment in your career. It uh, it was good and it was bad. Um, the good thing is we 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 finally won it. Mm. Um, the bad thing is we had the earthquake. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm born and raised in the Bay Area, a few blocks from the Coliseum. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. A few blocks from the Coliseum, literally, and uh, to have that happen um, was from a personal side, I mean, my family, which um, CPT, CP, uh, CP time, uh, colored people time, just in case you guys don't know, <laughs> CPT time, my family was late to the game. Mm. So when the earthquake hit, the, the Bay Bridge went down. Yeah. And so there was the Bay Bridge that went down. We couldn't come across the San Mateo Bridge um, and there wasn't very good uh, cellular communication as well as telephone communication. So I'm trying to find where my family is. Couldn't reach anybody. And uh, I'm thinking that they could have, they, something could have happened to them on the, on the Bay Bridge coming across. Um, because you can't go back across the Bay Bridge, which is normally a 20-minute drive from, the, from Candlestick to the Coliseum. It's about a 20-minute drive. So we can't go across the Bay Bridge. We can't go across the San Mateo Bridge. We have to, we have to commute to the uh, Dumbarton Bridge to get to, uh, I guess you people are saying, I don't even know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> Bay Bridge, San Mateo Bridge, Dumbarton Bridge. So you have to commute to the Dumbarton to, to get to the Coliseum. And San Francisco to Los Angeles is six hours. It took us six hours to get yeah. from the from the uh, from Candlestick Park uh, to the Coliseum. So it was really, it was a messy situation. Well, it was. And, uh, of course, it was a terrible tragedy. Uh, but then you were able to start again, and I think the Bay Area was pretty delighted to have, you know, the Bay Bridge series resume at that point, even without the Bay Bridge, yeah. because we were still commuting across the San yeah. Mateo Bridge, which I'm... Yeah, they opened up the San Mateo. Yeah. And, uh, by the way, we had 10 days... Ten days, thank you. Ten days was the, was the downtime. Um, uh, Tony had devised a plan for us, which was to, after a period of time, and we knew, first of all, it was we were in jeopardy, and it was threatened that we wouldn't continue the World Series. Um, once they decided that we were going to continue the World Series, and we knew it was going to happen, we went uh, we went to Arizona immediately, um, and we started working out and doing simulated games against each other. Uh, Dennis Eckersley had a chance to settle a vendetta that he had against Jose Canseco in a batting practice. He hit him in the ribs. <laughs> so, Tell us more. Oh, it was unbelievable. <laughs> they didn't like each other. Really? Oh, without a doubt. First chance he got, he smoked him in the ribs. I loved it. <laughs> so Eckersley pitched batting practice? We all did. We had uh, simulated games against each other, and uh, nobody got hit but Canseco. 
And I, I'm guessing he didn't hit a homer often before that. He just hit him. You know, I think it just, you know, before, this is crazy. Before we traded for Dennis, and I'm, I'm not sure if that was in 87 or 88, which year it was, but uh, we had this, uh, in spring training, uh, we had this, it was almost a, a team brawl, which Dennis was in the middle of. Um, and Hosey had gotten a hit off of him. The score was crazy. Uh, we were winning by more than 10 runs going into late in the game. Dennis was on the mound and was a pitcher that was getting his ass handed to him. And so Hosey stole second. He stole third. Dennis started getting pissed off. He looked over at the bench, started screaming at Hosey, and Tony was saying, I'm the one that called it. I'm the one that called it. So I think it started because three days later, Dennis Eckersley is now our teammate. So I think it started then, and it ended when he smoked him. <laughs> and then it was over after that, wasn't well, it? Was, it was way over after that. Jose learned his lesson, did he? Uh, well, for the time being. <laughs> And then was the World Series. Uh, moving into the next World Series, uh, we had, uh, you may remember we had Eric Davis up here just moments ago. Yes, I do. Um, were, were you aware of his strategy against you? Uh, I had no idea. I wasn't thinking back. I'd only faced him as far as I could remember that one time. And I didn't even remember facing him in the All-Star game. So just goes to show you, he was thinking of well ahead of me, but... The problem, wasn't, the problem wasn't that I threw him a fastball. The problem was the location of the fastball, uh -huh. which is why he hit it out of the ballpark. If I'd have got it where I wanted to, he'd have been going back with that little thumb pad that they put on it, talking about, oh, shit, he got in my kitchen. <laughs> but I didn't get it there. I got it out there. So he did what he was supposed to do. He hit it out of the ballpark. And he talked about he, every chance he gets. When we see each other, if we're sitting together with a group of people, somehow the topic comes up and he's loving it. He's sitting there loving it. So that's all right. You got me. You got me. You don't start it, but you know it's coming and you prepared. You got your ammunition ready. But Griff, you got one off of me too? Damn, I should have retired long before that. <laughs> Now, I know Parkway got one off me. Parkway, he got one off me, and man, there was a whole lot of bantering. We were teammates in Oakland, and, and uh, we both knew our time was coming. I was going to be going someplace, and he was going to be going. He hit it off me. Actually, he was with Milwaukee. Uh -huh. And for as much as we played with each other, Dave Parker, if you guys don't know him, was the life of, of the team. He was the person you talked to in serious matters, but he was the person when you needed uplifting and you needed to laugh and you need to remember that the game was a game he was the man he was there was nobody better and so we shoot I mean Terry Steinbach uh, was our catcher and he had nicknames for everybody Terry Steinbach was swimming uh, was a uh, home plate face and then um, if I can't even remember who it was they their lips were always watery and and wet they look wet wet looking and I can't remember Parker you remember who it was that's right. Swimming pool mouth? He called a swimming pool mouth. Who is that, Walt Weiss? I don't remember who the player was. And Dave, Dave Henderson, Dave Henderson had a gap in his, in his yeah. teeth, and we'd be talking, he'd say, Hindu, he said, man, people come to your house, man, they call you, they call you the jack-o'-lantern, and we don't have to worry about how we're going to line the first baseline. All you got to do is put a bunch of chalk in your mouth and go... 
and spit the line out. <laughs> so we were going back and forth, and I we were in the outfield, and, and I told Parker, I said, man, if you hit, I took a line out of Muhammad Ali's book. I said, man, if you hit a bomb off of me, man, I'm going to leave the country. I'm never coming back. And Parkway says, Stu, if I get you, man, he said, it's going to hurt me, man. But if I get you, man, it's going to be bittersweet, man. And sure enough, man, in, in, in Milwaukee, he got me. And we always talk about Parker. He run yeah. the bases, had the fingers flapping, and he got me. And I actually, I don't know why I was shocked, but I was shocked he did get me. And he told the story today, and, and, and he said as he got to first base, he was happy. He got the second base, he got a little sadder. Got the third base, he was tearing up, and when he got the home plate, he was crying. And I believe that, but man, we were talking so much mess in our clubhouse when we were winning World Series, or we were taking bets who was gonna be the MVP, but he was always in the middle of it all, and he kept our team together. It was the best acquisition we made as a team to get Dave Parker in our club. We needed that leadership, we needed it. Fantastic. Swimming pool mouth. Oh, brother, he used to call Dennis Miss Eckersley. <laughs> you know, he had the long hair. Yeah. Dennis hated it, man. He called him Miss Eckersley. They play poker in the back of the back of the plane. And he'd be taking everybody's money. Dennis would be getting missed, be getting pissed off, and he said, "Oh, don't worry about it, Miss Eckersley." And that would make him even matter. And Dennis. <laughs> You're looking at Dave, he's 6'6", 230. What is Dennis going to do except take it? <laughs> I've never been as delighted in my life. Oh, man. I'm guessing he, uh, Dennis didn't plunk uh, uh, Parker at any point. In... Uh, he didn't even think about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, when you were here uh, last time, two years ago, you got the, uh, the Jackie Robinson Lifetime Achievement Award, and now you're back here being inducted into the Hall of Game. How, t tell us about how you feel about that, Dave. The Hall of Game or the Jackie Robinson? Both. You know, being able to, to play the game, um, you know, the, <laughs> when I came into the Dodgers organization, which was my first organization, um, these are the people I met coming into the organization. The first person I met was Roy Cavanella. The next person I met was Jim Gilliam, Junior Gilliam. Then the next person after that was Don Newcomb. And so I had an opportunity to meet those three people and be around them every day of my spring training. Don Newcomb eventually decided that he would talk to me about the honor of being a black pitcher in Major League Baseball, and he, he called it an honor. Well, first of all, he called it an honor to play the game, um, but to, to be one of few in my position to, to play the game was, was another thing because, I mean, he was, he was as straightforward and as honest with me as he can. He said, for you to make it to this level and them to not have thought about making you an outfielder, um, that in itself is an honor. He said, so you must be able to think. He says, so the next thing you have to understand about this game is that you have to honor it and you have to love it and you have to play it with a passion and you have to remember that every day that you take the field, that you show these people something that will make them come back to see the team, but more importantly, to see you. 
and, and I never forgot it. I, I never forgot it. Don, Don Newcomb, um, there's only one other person that I would compare to Don Newcomb, and only in this sense, in the way that they dress, and that's Bob Kendrick. <laughs> Bob Kendrick, I'm telling you, I said this today and I mean it. Bob goes to bed in a suit and a tie. He puts his shoes on the side of the bed and I think he might even go to bed with his hat on. Tonight is the first time I can recall seeing him without his hat. That is the sharpest brother in America. <laughs> Do we all agree? Man, whoo. I gave him a hug today, man, and I was just trying to make sure some of that rubbed off on me. They're unbelievably sharp individuals. Bob Newcomb, uh, Don Newcomb was exactly the same, except Don Newcomb is about six foot five, six foot, six foot five. He looks to be a giant of a man because his shoulders are broad, well-dressed, um, and he walks with a presence that you'll never forget. Um, and, and so to take it back to where I should, you know, Jackie Robinson and the players in the Negro Leagues, in my position, and I look at my position to be a special position because even today there aren't a lot of black pitchers in the game. Um, for them to open up the door for us to have this opportunity, um, I mean, everything that I've had an opportunity to do for my family, um, for individuals in my community, um, I owe it all to them. And so, I mean, when I spoke to, to the, the group today, coming into the museum, um, being honored tonight, um, they always say that at some point you have to find your way back home. Uh, this is home for me. Dave Stewart. Let me bring Bob Kendrick back out here. The sharpest brother in America. <laughs> oh, here, you take this one. I'll grab that one. Would you guys enjoy that? What an absolute fabulous day. And, and this class, and I say, I think we say this every year. You know, because each class brings their own kind of flavor mm. to the event. And of course, this was no exception. But one more round of applause for the Cobra, Dave Parker, Dave Smoke Stewart, Fred the Crime Dog McGriff, and Eric the Red Davis, our illustrious class of 2019. And, of course, the legendary Sharon Robinson. And, and so, I, I said it earlier today, the one common thread, and I think we have it with Sharon and with Dave Parker, Dave Stewart, Fred McGriff, Eric Davis, Buck O'Neill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Buck O'Neill. And, and I said it earlier today, I, I know that old Buck is somewhere in that great somewhere smiling down, and he couldn't be more prouder of, number one, the great support that you all are continuing to provide for the museum and this amazing group of legendary baseball players who gave up their time to come here to Kansas City so that we could celebrate them. And, and we could not be more prouder. And before we go, 
I would be remiss if I did not say that this is the 29th anniversary of Dave Stewart. Oh, yes, it is. No hitter. Yeah, 29 years ago to this date. Against the Toronto Blue Jays. Threw a no hitter at the Sky Dome. Yeah, at the Sky Dome. So happy anniversary, Dave. All these hitters, all these hitters been talking about you all night. But yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but it's been a fabulous night. And, and thank you to my friend. How about a big round of applause You're very kind. for thank the you. legendary Greg Proops. One more big round of applause for this band led by band leader Daryl Terrell. And, and we look forward to seeing you all here. Uh, we open a brand new exhibit called Barrier Breakers in August. And of course, the Hot Dog Festival, August 10th. And so many other great Isn't events. next year the 100th anniversary? And next year marks the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues right here in Kansas City. We think that it is one of the most significant, important occasions in American history. And with the support of all of you, we think we could turn this milestone celebration into a major fundraising effort for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and bring even greater credence to this wonderful piece of baseball and Americana. The Negro Leagues should be celebrated. And it should be celebrated not only for what it accomplished on the baseball field, but just as importantly, what it represents off the baseball field. This is an amazing story of hope. It is an amazing story of determination. It is an amazing story of courage and how these tremendously gifted athletes forged a glorious history in the midst of an inglorious time in American history. And that should be celebrated. We hope to do so next year in grandiose fashion. We know that you all will be there with us as we lay plans. February 13, 2020 will mark the first event. November 14, 2020 will mark the end of the celebration with a grand gala here in Kansas City. Now, I haven't figured out what we're going to do in between then. We'll figure that out on the way as we make our way through it. But we look forward to a great year. Again, Greg, thank you so much. Bob Kendrick, ladies thank and gentlemen. You all. Thank you all. And, and if we can get all the honorees back up on stage for a group shot, we certainly would appreciate that. But for the rest of you guys, thank you all so much for being a part of this celebration. We hope you enjoyed the sixth annual Hall of Game. Good night.